0: So, uh, let's turn the corner and talk about uh, our, our text this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts, as we have been, and over these last weeks and months, um, I want to remind you what the initial theme was that we talked about. The book of Acts is really uh, about the advance of the good news, which the scriptures refers to as, refer to as the gospel. The, good, the word gospel means good news, and the message, the good news, the message of the gospel is that God has come into the world. He's taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's connected with humankind in many beautiful ways, teaching, instructing, loving, healing. Think of all the stories of Jesus, laying hands on people, caring for them, loving them, speaking truth, being present in their lives, and then ultimately going to the cross and offering forgiveness for sin. In his atoning sacrifice. And so, because of what has happened, because of this event, life is different. Life is changed, transformed by the work of Jesus. Life is new because you're beloved of God. That's what Jesus says in his life, in his words, and his deeds. Life is new because God has the power to change the world. That's what the resurrection says. And life is new because we have hope, because the resurrection is a sign that God is in, fact, is, in a, is, is in fact powerful. And so we can trust when he says that he will bring transformation, he has the ability to do just that. And the spread of the gospel is the advance of that news. And as it reaches more and more people, lives are changed. And that's the story of the book of Acts. It's the initial spread of the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the very beginning, we looked at chapter 1, verse 8. Um, you will see, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And I want you to think of this geographically. Jerusalem would be in the center. Judea and Samaria, that's moving out to the next realm, and then to the ends of the earth. And that verse actually provides the structure of the book of Acts and the advance of the good news across each of those lines. First starting in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And today's text is important because we're moving from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. The the gospel, the good news advances across that line. So would you open with me to Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll pass one to you. And uh, as I always encourage, don't be shy about getting a Bible. We'd really love for you to dig into the words in Scripture. Uh, And it's on page 633 in that uh, Bible that we hand out. Or if it's the blue one, it's 534. And what you're going to see in this text as you're you're looking up, you're going to see that while while the, the good news is advancing, the advance of it oftentimes takes place in some pretty surprising ways, some ways that we maybe wouldn't have anticipated. In fact, if we were drawing it up, we might not have drawn it up this way. And there are some lessons in the surprising way that the good news advances that will help us as as God invites us to participate with him in this incredible work. Chapter 8, verse 1. Follow along with me, and I'll I'll make a few comments just to help get the context here. We've just had the execution of Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. The first Christian martyr is Stephen. And the person overseeing it is Saul, who will become Paul, that we learn so much about later on in the New Testament. But right now, he has not encountered Jesus, and he stands against the church, and he's the leader of the persecution of the church. So we read this, and Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. There it is. There's, there's that, that signal that we're seeing the advance of the good news. And I want you to, if you're an underliner, underline the word scattered. It's an important word in that phrase. Uh, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, devout men, verse 2, buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, which in and of itself was an act of rebellion because somebody who was cursed like Stephen was, they believed, should not uh, have a proper burial. Verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Engage your Your mind. Imagine what that would have felt like to be in Jerusalem, you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, and now all of a sudden this person is chasing after you to the point of dragging people off to prison. Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. There's transformation taking place. And when transformation takes place, people get happy because they're seeing lives that have gone from bad to good. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift, if you're underlining, underline the word gift, of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, which is a phrase that indicates envy, and in the bond of iniquity. So so uh, Simon wanted this pow- power that the apostles had. He was a practicer of magic, but he wanted this additional power. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And in this way, the gospel was advancing. The good news was advancing. And what I would like for us to reflect on this morning in this passage are, is how, how does it advance? How does the gospel advance? How does the good news advance? And we're going to see several important ways, lessons from this text on how the gospel advances. And the first one is that it advances across ethnic lines. So to get an understanding, you need to understand a little bit about Jews and Samaritans. So Samaritans were in the area next to Judea, Jerusalem. Uh, That was the epicenter of Judaism, of course, in Jerusalem. Uh, But the Samaritans had been overrun in the course of history by other nations. And so uh, they were, in a sense, to the Judeans, sort of like half-breeds because they had intermixed with the nations around them. And the history of the relationship between uh, Samaritans and, and Jews in Judea was broken and fragmented. There was a lot of distrust uh, a lot of dislike between them. They did not respect one another, and there, it was reflected in their worship practices, such that there was a kind of a, what they call a, a Samaritan curtain between the two different groups of people, the Samaritans and then the, the, the more ethnically pure, if you want to say, uh, Jews who were in Jerusalem. In fact, this is why when Jesus teaches the story of the Good Samaritan, it's so scandalous to the hearers that the hero of the story is the Samaritan because there was a lot of distrust and dislike between them. Would have, they wouldn't have put him in that position, but Jesus does it on purpose to make a point. So you've got to understand that to cross from Judea to Samaria to share the gospel was to cross an ethnic divide and to bring the good news to a different kind of people, to a people uh, that between whom there was animosity, and it was somewhat uh, scandalous. So how does God get them, those Jerusalem Jews, to cross this line and share the gospel in Samaria? And the answer is persecution. It was the persecution that caused them, that motivated them to cross the line into Samaria. They weren't going to go on their own, most likely, because it wouldn't have been something that would have come to their minds. And we have this beautiful interaction between them. So When Peter and John uh, arrive, they lay hands on the Samaritan believers, these new believers. And they're basically saying at that point, by laying hands on them, we accept you. So the Samaritans have accepted the good news about Jesus Christ. They've accepted the message that was being preached in Jerusalem. But now the Jerusalem uh, Christians come down and they receive the Samaritans. So you have this beautiful incident. Uh, very poignant, where the two groups are being knit together. And what is it that's knitting them together? What is it that's crossing that divide? It's the, it's the gospel. It's the good news being received and being passed on. And those of you who are students of the Scripture, you know um, there's some controversy around this text with respect to the fact that the initiation process for the Samaritans is two steps. They believe, and they're baptized in the name of Jesus, and then afterwards, Peter and John come and they lay hands and they give them the Holy Spirit. And so in some corners of the Christian faith, this text has been used to, uh, our, to, to, for the view that uh, actually when we come to faith, there's a two-stage process that we receive Jesus and then somebody lays hands on us and we receive the Holy Spirit. I prefer the interpretation that says that the reason that there was is two stages is because you have this healing of this ethnic divide that's taking place, that's been taking place. So the, the, you have the, the Samaritans saying yes to the good news, and you have the, the Jews in Jerusalem coming down saying yes to the Samaritans. We welcome you into fellowship in the church. That's, 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 that's a, a, probably a stronger interpretation, in my view, than the other one because all throughout the rest of the New Testament, you don't see this two-stage sort of coming to faith. When you come to faith, you also receive the Holy Spirit. And it may have been a little bit that, that Philip didn't teach them about the Holy Spirit, and so the apostles were doing that. But what God is doing is creating this moment where the two sides, these two ethnicities are coming together, and it's a beautiful, poignant, poignant moment, and it involves the laying on of hands. Uh, and, and, and we just have to be reminded that when the gospel, when the good news advances, it's going to cross over all kinds of ethnic divisions that we experience in our world. That's what it does. That's part of the beauty and the power of the good news. And so we should be looking for those opportunities and participating with it. And it's not a superficial thing. What I see in the, uh, the apostles coming and laying on their hands is they're getting past the superficiality of it. To lay hands on somebody is a very intimate thing to do and to pray for them. And I wonder if that's an encouragement for us as a church, not to be satisfied merely with sitting in a room that's multi-ethnic, but to go to another level beyond that. Now, maybe I don't know if it looks like laying on hands of each other in prayer, but what it means is to really get into each other's lives and and, and to embrace the opportunities that we have. Because there's something uh, that the world sees when, when people who are from all different walks come together. And the thing that knits them together is the good news. That says something to the world about the power of the gospel. And don't, don't we live in a world that needs that desperately? Yeah, we do. And so uh, we can live into that, and, and that's going to be part of how the gospel, the good news, is going to advance. So it advances across ethnic lines. That's the first one. The second one is it, it advances by a greater power. By a greater power, um, and I don't have. Uh, I'm going to mention this briefly. I wish I could develop it some more, but um, there's just so much in this text. But I'll say this: when when Philip gets to Samaria, you notice there's already a powerful spiritual force present there in the person of Simon, and Simon has a great following, and they're even saying that he's got the power of God, but he's actually practicing dark arts, and 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 he's got he's got favor with the young and the old and a broad following. And I just wonder if maybe Philip would have been tempted to be intimidated as he walked into that scenario, right? I know I, would, I know I would have been, to be intimidated by the spiritual work that's already happening there. But Philip's not intimidated at all. In fact, he stands in a long tradition in the Bible of small people who face big, big enemies, if you want to say it that way. Moses standing before Pharaoh, you know? David standing before Goliath, Right? Paul standing against the Roman Empire. Over and over again, we see that the people who really grasp the good news understand that it is a power greater than any other. And they're unintimidated by the spiritual dynamic that they're facing. And this is really important for us. As well, because we live in a secular age, we live in the least church part of the country, you know, and it's easy for us to feel intimidated from time to time. But it's a reminder that here in the good news, we have a gospel that's a greater power, and we're going to hopefully have a gospel academy. Um, we've been working. T- Desmond's talking about this on what it's like to live in a secular age and what are some of the dynamics and the spiritual dynamics that are at play. Uh, in, in this. And I, I'm really excited for us to lean into that. So this is why um, I, I, I'm only mentioning this briefly because there's so much to talk about here. But the baseline, you understand the base, and that is the gospel advances because ultimately it's a greater power. All right. The third one is that the gospel advances through failure. And I put failure in quotes. Failure is such a tricky word. Uh, so many times in my life I've felt like something has been a failure and it's ended up being a success, but I didn't know that at the time. And that's very much the case when you look through the scriptures and you see the way God works. So I put failure in quotes because sometimes our greatest failure ends up being our greatest success. And what, that's what you see in this text. Um, the gospel is powerful, but you're going to see the people themselves are oftentimes in a place of weakness. Those who, The vessels who bring the good news are often in a place of weakness. So the news itself is powerful. The work of the Holy Spirit is powerful, but the vessels who carry that news are often weak and often seem powerless. Now, those of you who were uh, readers of C.S. Lewis, maybe when you were children and you read the Chronicles of Narnia, and he has this wonderful image of Narnia as this magical place, and but it's trapped in winter. And when the, the Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure comes, uh, the winter is melted away, and spring comes wherever he goes. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of sort of the advance of the good news. Now that's, that's, that is the general concept. But when you look in the New Testament, what you find is that advance actually comes oftentimes with a lot less glory and lots of fits and starts and through the weakness and the brokenness of people and that's what we have in this text that it almost as if it's as if through the failure now the persecution could be viewed as failure i'm trying to imagine myself being in the scenario in jerusalem and people are chasing after me the the religious leaders are chasing after me and i would have thought that that when we started talking about jesus you know they would have you know they're they're supposed to be the ones who know they would have gotten on board right it would have been surprising. And then to be chased out of your home and to be scattered. And, and I know myself, I know I would have asked myself questions like this. I would have said, oh, man, you know, I should have been more likable in the way I presented the news. I should, have, I should have used more I should have been more... If I were just more eloquent, right, they would have received the message that I was trying to share with them. If I was more sensitive, then maybe they would have received... The message, And when Philip gets to Samaria, you got to imagine and remember that Philip has been chased out of his home in Jerusalem. He ends up in Samaria where there's already this animosity between the races there, the ethnicities there. He's been chased. Now, how tempted would he be uh, to be overcome with shame, right? He's a beleaguered man who's been chased out of his home and he's in a place where he's not welcome. Very tempting to hide your head at that point. But what does he do? He, start, he says, well, I guess I'm here. I'm going to start sharing the good news with these people. See, what they, see how they respond. And it just turns out that the early church understands this important point, that the gospel, the good news, advances oftentimes through failure and shame. The good news advances through failure, what seems like failure, and shame. God does his best work sometimes in what seemed like the most shameful moments. And all you have to do is look to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he was on the lowest rung in that society. I mean, you could be in prison, you could be a criminal in all different kinds of ways, but the lowest of the low was to be hung on a cross, publicly displayed for the world to see. There was no deeper shame than to be on the cross. I have a suspicion that many of us disqualify ourselves from the invitation to share the good news because we are embarrassed about something in our own lives. We feel the shame of our own sinfulness or brokenness. We let personal failure or work failure or family failure define us. And so we remove ourselves from the possibility Uh, Am I the only one who feels that? I hope not. When we look at our lives and we think, oh, how could God use me? These people are so much better. And how am I going to share my life, which is in such a sorry state? And yet, how often has it been that the most moving testimony has been the one that's been shared out of a person's deep brokenness and shame? Think back to the people that have moved you in your life. And I'll I'll venture to bet that many times it's been the person who is sharing uh, the testimony of Jesus, not out of their triumph, but out of their brokenness, out of their weakness, out of even the things that have caused them great shame. And those have been the ones that have touched your heart. I know this in my relationships with people, I continually have to relearn this message. I think that if I tell them, you know, about all the things I'm involved in and, and, and all the things I've accomplished, then they're going to want to love Jesus. And I find out that they're more interested, they're more curious when I start sharing the broken bits of my life, the shameful parts of my life. It's in the failure, quote-unquote, that God often works most powerfully, even when it comes to... To shame, Paul, who, if you look at his resume, was sort of the elite of his day, ended up learning this lesson such that when we see a more mature Paul in ministry, he can say things like this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the good news is not that you're awesome or that I'm awesome. The good news is that God is awesome. And that gets most reflected in our weakness most often. So we've got to develop this impulse, like Paul had, to be content when we experience weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, to embrace those. I, I get so frustrated with myself because when those things come, I react, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I think, oh no, all is lost, and yet Paul shows us a new way that in all of our insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities and weaknesses, we can say, aha, this is where God's going to do his best work. To let that become the default response to these moments. Because we know, 1 Peter 2, 6, this truth, this promise as well. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. That's a reference to Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the promise, the ultimate promise that will be brought to fruition so we can endure, like Christ, momentary shame, momentary suffering because we have the resurrection to look forward to. In this text, the shameful thing, the difficult thing was that the church was being scattered. They were being chased. They were were beleaguered. But that becomes the strategy that God uses to advance the good news. People have talked about how that can be the strategy for a church as well. We gather on a Sunday. We gather, and then every week we scatter. We have that same dynamic taking place. We gather, and we scatter. We gather, and we scatter. We gather, and we say, why is that? Why do we get scattered all around the Bay Area to different, different uh, workplaces and different cities and, and different neighborhoods? Why is that? Because we're to be carrying with us, the good news as we go to each and every one of these places. And we've designated, as a result of this text, we've designated, and the next text, we've designated this next Sunday as an Invitation Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the story of the Ethiopian who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a beautiful, very poignant kind of telling of of just a wonderful uh, moment when this man discovers the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so we thought, jumping off of this text this morning and then thinking about next week, it would be a good time to designate as an invitation Sunday. So we're encouraging you to prayerfully ask if there's somebody in your sphere that you might invite to worship next Sunday. Now, I, I don't have any illusions about this. I live in the Bay Area, too. I know that a lot of my friends... It would be mind-blowing for me to invite them to worship. But there are some with whom I've got a different kind of relationship or in their different place, and I could invite them to worship with us. And so so maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind even right now the faces of some people that you've come to love and care about deeply. And, And maybe next Sunday is a time for you to bring them to hear the good news, and then you can ask them questions and talk with them and pray for them and think about Uh, the ongoing relationship that you have with them. So that's going to be next Sunday. And uh, I would encourage you to think about your friends, your relatives, your associates, your neighbors, and uh, and consider inviting them on this next Sunday. And we're going to work really hard to make the good news as clear and accessible as we can, while also knowing that we'll never be eloquent enough, right? We need the Holy Spirit. So we're stepping out in faith to trust that God will meet us. So anyway, the the gospel advances through failure, quote-unquote. And then the last one is that it advances by relationship. And I don't have much time, so I'm going to move through this quickly. But uh, Simon believes, this magician, he believes when Philip comes and he's talking about the good news, but then he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, which shows that his belief is misconceived. He's not really understanding what it means to believe in God through Jesus Christ. He's thinking transactionally. He's thinking that if I do this, then God, you'll do this, right? If I give money, then I'll get power. And Peter calls him out. You might have noticed that he calls him out in a pretty harsh way because what's happening here is that Simon is threatening the very core of the good news. He's messing with the good news itself at its very essence, I had you underline the word gift. Essential to the goodness of the good news is that it's free. And Simon has misconceived that it's free. He doesn't understand that it's free. And so that's why Paul, Peter, excuse me, is so strong in his criticism and his call to repentance for Simon. Because if, if we believe what Simon believes, we don't have good news at all. If you take out the free, the gift element of the good news, it's not good news anymore. And it's easy to jump on Simon, uh, you know, because we think, of, well, we, do we ever do this? Do, we, do I ever say to God, um, this might make you think that, that maybe Simon is not so crazy. Do you ever say to God, hey, God, if I do this, how about you do this? Right? This huge temptation as human beings to fall into a kind of a transactional relationship with God. If I do this, you do this. Or God, or or even, how about this one? Hey, God, I did all that. How come you didn't do this? Right? The temptation is with us. In fact, it's crazy because later on, Peter will fall into it in the book of Galatians, and Paul will call him out on this very thing. So we have to stand on guard with this to protect the freedom of the gift of the good news in our own souls and in the, in the church and in the lives around us. Because at the end of the day, the Lord is not a broker. He's a lover. And he wants relationship with us. He wants to be in loving relationship. He doesn't want this transactional thing. He wants day in and day out relationship. And all that energy we take to try and please God, we would be better served to put in trying to know God. And out of the knowledge of God comes the kind of inner transformation that we ultimately long for. We can't can't beat ourselves up. We can't earn our way into that kind of transformation. But what we can do is draw close to God. We can take all that energy and apply it to knowing God through Jesus Christ. And what you'll find is so much, it's such a better way, it's the only way, it's the gospel way. What you'll find is that as you draw close to the Lord and you 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 get in deeper relationship and closer walk with God, the kinds of transformations that you wanted to take place will begin to take place all the more. And you see this contrast in the disciples And in Simon, Simon wants to get this power so he can control the situation, right? There's a lot of control in the way that Simon... I'm going to give you money, you give me the power, and then I'll use it for my own good. I'll use it for the things that I want to do. And the disciples, Philip, for example, they have a very open-handed approach to life that is rooted in a relationship with God. I mean, Philip, he just got kicked out of Jerusalem. He finds himself in, in Samaria... And what does he do? He's like, oh, I'm in Samaria. Okay, I guess I'll preach the good news here. It's an open-handed walk in a relational way with God as opposed to a kind of a controlling attempt to, to, to put God in a box and make God do what we would want him to do. It's a beautiful dynamic. It's freeing. And all of you who are on the treadmill of trying to be good enough for God, and, and don't think that you're not on this treadmill because it happens in very sneaky ways. You might know the truth up here, but in your heart, if you're like most human beings, you're still working, and working it out. You're still on the treadmill in some, some, some ways. And so uh, all of us who are on the treadmill, we should breathe a sigh of relief because we don't have to be good enough for God or for the people around us. We can let it go. That's the gospel. That's the goodness of the gospel. That's the freedom of the good news. And so, Lord, would you help us this week to scatter from this place, emboldened like Philip, courageous like Philip, relying on the power of the gospel, Embracing our own weakness, hardship, persecution, calamity, insult. Living deeply into our relationship with you. Drawing from our daily walk with you. Being resourced in you. Would you help us this week to scatter from, from this place with, with all of that goodness. And to be your instruments In the world, as you guide us and lead us, perhaps this morning, some people have come to mind that we've fallen in love with, people that we care about deeply, people that we long for to have an encounter with the living God, and just maybe it's in this week that you will provide that encounter as you work in and through us even in our weakness. So meet us meet us at this table as we reflect on these things. Meet us throughout this week as we reflect on the words you have shared with us this morning. Don't let us drop it, Lord. We want to be a part of the advance of the good news in a world that is hurt, hurting and broken in so many, many ways and for individuals who are hurting and broken in so many, many ways. We are your servants, as flawed and incapable and inadequate as we often seem. So work through us, we pray, to display your glory. The good news is not that we are awesome. It's that you, God, are awesome. Display that truth through us in the coming days, we ask in Jesus' name.